morning, Summit Drive family. Good morning, any visitors. Uh, I am Grant Del Bijou, and I have the pleasure of uh, sharing this message from Matthew 26 with you. It's really uh, a pivotal passage near the end of the book of Matthew, uh, where we are introduced to the Lord's Supper. We uh, learn of, of Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, his arrest, really the time leading up to his, his capture and, and crucifixion. And it is really uh, a passage that uh, is linked to Old Testament prophecy <clears throat> and is also very forward-looking as well, as Jesus really explains this cross that stands before him. It is essentially, uh, really, Jesus' last opportunity to instruct his disciples before he goes to the cross. And so you could look at it in some ways as really uh, graduation day. The disciples have been with Jesus for three years. He's been teaching and nurturing them. And soon they will be making disciples of their own. They will be building Christ's church. And so with every graduation day comes that dreaded final exam, that, that, that big test. And the disciples are going to be tested like never before. They are going to be tempted like never before. You know, as I was preparing this message, uh, I was also preparing for a trip back to uh, Winnipeg. I'm going next month. And it is my 35-year medical class reunion. And uh, it's a long time, eh? <laughs> and I was thinking back to 35 years ago, we had a graduation uh, banquet for medical school, and we had chosen our favorite uh, clinical instructor, uh, Dr. Ferguson, to address us. He was a, a kind, uh, wise man. He was actually a kidney specialist. Um, you might think of him as uh, like your favorite plumber, but in a nice white shiny coat. We really, really respected uh, Dr. Ferguson, and that's why we, as a class, chose for him to speak. And, you know, we were feeling kind of giddy with our success of finishing medical school. We were ready for further training, further successes, really to stamp disease out everywhere. But he really brought us down to earth that evening. He spoke about the challenge before us. He gently confronted us. He said that you will serve many patients in the years ahead. And if you do that with compassion, you listen to their stories, their struggles, you share some of maybe their most vulnerable moments with them, well, you will make a big difference. I think uh, all of us were uh, affected by that. And I still remember his message all these years later. But I think beneath his words, really what he was saying to us is, hey, you guys, 
What are you in it for? What are you in it for? And so this brings me to this passage. And as I considered this passage and that it was the disciples' graduation day, really Jesus' graduation in a, in a sense too, I thought this was an excellent question to ask of the characters in this passage. What were they in it for? How does Jesus stand the test? How does Peter, one of his leading graduates, make out? Well, we have much to consider. So before I dive into it, let let me just take a moment and pray. Lord, give us, as uh, Pastor Dave prayed, fresh eyes, fresh ears, soft, teachable hearts as we consider Matthew 26 this morning. Thank you for your precious word that it is preserved for our instruction, for your glory. Lord, I pray you would continue to search and teach our hearts as we look at this scripture. May all I say bring you and you alone glory this morning. Amen. Now, as uh, again, Pastor Harry reminded us, or sorry, Pastor Dave reminded us, this, this passage has 75 verses. Uh, just to read it would take uh, uh, more than 10 minutes. And I think if I spent about a minute on each verse, I'd be the only one standing in this auditorium <laughs> by the time I finish. So I won't do that. I'm going to run through it in an outline. And uh, so fasten your seatbelt. There's a lot that happens here. Verse 1 to 5, Jesus reminds us of his coming crucifixion, even as the chief priests are plotting against him. 6 to 13, Jesus is anointed with burial perfume by the woman at Bethany. He says, we will remember this woman, and we do. 14 to 16, Judas agrees with the chief priests to betray Jesus. 17 to 30, and this is one of the sections I'm going to focus on, the Passover becomes the Lord's table. 31 to 35, Jesus predicts Peter's denial. 36 to 46, Gethsemane, the cup of fury, and Jesus' passionate prayer. 47 to 56, Jesus is arrested in the night. 57 to 68, before the Sanhedrin, he stands. The fix is in. And finally, 69 to 75, Peter's very painful denial. Well, Jesus announces as early as verse 2 what his purpose is, what he's in it for. He, he tells them that he will be handed over and he will be crucified. He has given the disciples some instructions, excuse me, some instructions to prepare for the Passover meal. And uh, this will be the last meal uh, that they have together and the last drink of, of wine together until he explains in verse 29, till that day when I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. And you see this um, repeatedly in this passage that when Jesus tells of his impending death, that he will be taken away from them, he is always consoling them. But... The meal does not really start with reassurances. The first thing Matthew records is Jesus confronting the disciples that one of them will betray him. Well, if Dr. Ferguson's 
confrontation 35 years ago was really a gentle warning. This was a five-alarm fire. Someone he had been lovingly teaching and living with, someone who was dipping his hand in the bowl with him would betray him. And Jesus here is really clearly calling out and chastising Judas for his betrayal. Woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. But he's doing something more. He is also clearly acknowledging what will transpire. He says, the Son of Man will go just as it is written. In his humanness, for Jesus was fully human, as well as being fully God, the task before him was incredibly daunting. But he was resolute in his purpose. And if this thing had to happen, let's get on with it. Let's, let's go and do this thing. Pastor Harry reminded me just this week that for Jesus, his food was to do the will of the Father and to finish that work. In verse 26 through 28, moving forward, Matthew records the instructions that Jesus gave regarding the Passover bread and wine. So picture this scene. They are in this upper room and uh, at this lower table, sitting on cushions and things in this typical Middle Eastern pattern. And they were celebrating this Passover meal to really kick, uh, kick off this week of the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And this uh, was a time that was really to mark uh, the time when the Israelites came out of Egypt. It's, it was given as an ordinance in, in Exodus chapter 12. And really, that this particularly is around that, that special night when they were to uh, mark how Pharaoh finally let them go. Jesus was the host or the presider, you could say, over this meal. And in, in his role as being a presider, he was really going to explain that meal. And if you've ever been in a, a Jewish home at the time of Passover, they still do this to this day. They, they have a, a, a presider, usually the youngest person in the room who, who can ask a question and says, well, what is the bread about and what is the wine about and so on, and, and the presider would explain it. So there's lots of ritual and symbolism in this. Jesus radically updates and per personalizes this Passover meal. He says, uh, he would have typically said in the, the past that this is the bread of affliction, which our ancestors ate hastily, still unrisen, when they escaped out of Egypt. But instead he says, this, take, eat this bread. This is my body. He's really saying this is not just the bread of affliction. This is the bread of my affliction. Jesus also gave new uh, meaning to the cup of wine. Typically with the Passover meal, they actually would have four different cups of wine for the four great promises in Exodus chapter 6. I'm sure they were really small glasses of wine. So those four cups meant, I will bring out, I will deliver, I will redeem, I will take. Jesus again breaks with tradition and he says, 
This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He is clearly starting a whole new tradition. And while Matthew does not record it, Luke certainly does that his instructions to do this continually as a remembrance of him. He clearly wants to emphasize and explain that there's going to be a sacrifice that will take place. His death must be understood as substitutionary. He wants the disciples to understand this. He wants you and I to understand this. He will die for our sins. And really, you know, he's taking one of the most cherished uh, Jewish holiday traditions and he's shining a whole new light on it. Of course, back in Egypt, that night, they, for that Passover meal, they killed the Passover lamb and they were instructed, as in this picture, to paint it over the top of the door frame. And of course, this was the last of the plagues to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. And for every house that had this blood painted over the door frame, the angel of death would pass over that house and not strike dead that firstborn son within. It was a terrible judgment. Pharaoh's heart was very hardened. And this was just the final stroke that had to take place. It seemed to to let him let the people go. But Jesus is saying, really, that that was all a foreshadowing. A foreshadowing of this time, this day, when all these sacrificial uh, animals that were on the altar, all these people that were redeemed and rescued, from some dictator, all these people that were returned from from exiles, all that was pointing to this time. This is the crux, the climax of all history when God will make a bridge between man and himself. You know that, that evening with the disciples, there's no mention of a Passover lamb for their meal but the Passover lamb was present this time the firstborn son would not be spared there was no substitutionary lamb's blood over the door frame there was no ram caught in a thicket as with Abraham and Isaac it was Jesus God's first and only son whose blood would be spilled out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This would change everything. This would cement the cross as the turning point in human history. Well, if graduation banquets are times for some confrontation, Jesus was just getting started. He informed the disciples in verse 31, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. 
he quickly goes on to reassure them that he will rise again and go ahead of them into Galilee after this warning. But notice in verse 33 that Peter, he doesn't pick up on this reassurance regarding his resurrection. He, of course, replies, even if all the other disciples forsake you, I never will. He seems uh, more intent on maybe showing his bravery than with carefully listening to Jesus. And even after all the careful instruction that Jesus had gained, uh, had given his, his demonstration of his power, his prophecy, all his ministry, he still boldly contradicts him. Peter is nothing if not bold and impulsive. He was quick to lead. He was the first one to step out of, out of that boat onto the water. He was the first one to declare Jesus is the Messiah. But we can ask this question, what was he really in it for at this time? At some level, Peter seemed more focused on showing his valor than obeying Jesus. Jesus, of course, in turn replies, I tell you the truth, this very night, Peter, you will disown me three times. Peter's not done yet. Even if I have to die, I will never disown you. Strong leader than he is, the other disciples echo his pledge. What is the takeaway? Sometimes we want to sort of step up and run ahead and do some great thing for God when really we need to slow down, talk to God, listen to his instruction. Remember to ask Lord, what am I in this for? Is this about you? Is this about me? I want to now look at this this section uh, 36 to 46, the prayer in the garden. I'm going to read it to you. Then Jesus came with them into this place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and he fell on his face and prayed, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went and he prayed saying, Oh, Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy. So he left, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same words. And then he came to his disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rest, arise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. 
It is that dark, fateful night in the garden when Jesus really needed the prayer support of his friends, his close friends, more than any other time. He is described as being sorrowful and distressed. And in looking at the looking at the commentators, they, they, they indicated that distress could be interpreted as he was horrified. I don't know about you, but I don't think I've really watched a horror movie since I was a teenager. But, you know, uh, I remember something of the, the mood they try and create, this, this impending evil where God is, is absent. And I think this is what Jesus was just starting to, to sense, that he would have to carry this great burden of sin alone. You know, I think we all know this sort of sinking, lonely, shameful feeling that comes after we do something we really regret. Adam and Eve knew it. They went and hid in the garden. And sin is basically that thing that makes us go and hide. Sin separates us from God, our creator. The rub is that really we were designed to enjoy God, to uh, be in relationship with him and to serve him. And so here's this, this block, this, this distance that, that comes with sin. And you can multiply that a billion times and still probably not get to the point of what Jesus was experiencing that day. But that, that starts to approach it. He walked so closely with the Father, constantly in prayer, going away for long periods of time to pray. But this time, God would turn his face away. Great would be the temptation to find a way around this horrible task. And, you know, Jesus is this great model for prayer because First of all, he initially even goes away and he prays for an hour about this. He doesn't, it's not like a, a three-sentence pray, prayer like we, we sometimes do. He, he took the time to pray about this at length. And he prayed very honestly, Lord, if there's some way this cup can be taken away from me. But ultimately came to, but not my will, but yours. Really, the cup he's talking about is this cup of fury, this cup of, that really means all the sin of, of humankind from the beginning of time and past the time of Christ, uh, time on this earth. Isaiah 51 says, describe, describes this cup, Awake, awake, rise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, of his fury, you who have drained it to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. Jesus really is punched in the gut with sorrow, but after an hour of prayer, while the disciples were sleeping, he comes around to saying, Father, may your will be done. This is the only way that those sleeping disciples who say one thing and pledge one thing during the day and do another thing, in the dark of night, will be saved. This is the only way that all the, the dark negative thoughts that we have 
will be atoned for. This is the only way the things that we do when others aren't looking in the dark of night will be atoned for. Someone, the perfect Lamb of God, had to stand in our place or we would be eternally separated from our Creator. You know, and, and some people will, will tell you, you know, there's many ways to God. Well, if that's true, this ter- terrible cup that Jesus drank, the, the cross of Calvary, was really just a, a cruel, needless charade. Jesus didn't leave room for that. He tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no one comes to the Father except through me. Graduation day, the final test. What was Jesus in it for? Well, I am grateful that he understood the purpose of the Father's will. And God's will was to break the power of sin and darkness and set the captives free. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So my friends, what that means is that not only has Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross taken away my sins, your sins, all the good and loving and perfect things that Jesus did on this earth, they are deposited into my account. When when God looks at us, that's how he sees us. Such a wonderful thing. And you know, it makes me want to live into that goodness that he's already given me. Peter had a really, really bad graduation day. To sum it up, he contradicts Jesus' prediction that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. He appears to grandstand, pointing out that he won't fall away even if all the others do. Three times Jesus asks him to pray in the garden. Three times he goes to sleep. And so he goes prayerless into this encounter with Jesus' captors. He pulls his sword against Jesus' wishes and acts rashly. Rodney Reeves, a New Testament scholar, put it this way. They were going to lose their lives on their terms with their weapons. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of men, to this earth. He seemed willing to go out in a flash of glory on his terms. But Jesus told him, where I go, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. Three times he goes prayerless, and later three times he denies Jesus. This bold passionate man this strong man is reduced by the end of the passage to sobbing like a child Peter had a brutal graduation day what was he in it for I don't pretend to understand the depths of Peter's heart but I do believe he he truly loved Jesus but sometimes like you and like me He loved other things more. What was he in it for? You know, 
Peter was a bold, strong leader. He was used to impressing people. Charles Swindoll once said that for every hundred people that can survive failure, perhaps one can survive success. Peter was used to success, but he learned much more from failure. I think Peter had to learn the hard way what he was in it for because it was not until then that he could truly learn to serve Jesus, to love his church, to love his sheep. Perhaps you, like me, are a bit like Peter, trying to be first, trying to impress, maybe even sometimes trying to show up others. Well, who gets the glory there? Maybe you're just the opposite. You never step up. You shy away from any attention because it's the same underlying issue. You just care too much how you're perceived. Either way, it doesn't look a lot like Jesus. Let's confess to God this morning, Lord, I know you see the depths of our hearts and you love us the same but you do care what we are in it for. We want to live into the goodness of Jesus you have already placed into our accounts. We see that it came at a great cost. Amen. You know, Peter saw that great cost firsthand. And he went on to become the rock of the church in Jerusalem. He went on to preach to Christ's glory on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people came to know Christ. Perhaps this morning you find yourself not in Christ, that you don't know him as your savior. You're still carrying the weight of your sin and you know, you know it's hurting you and it's hurting others around you. It's time to admit You've been in it all for yourself. Give your life back to your creator. I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, his paraphrase of Romans 6.23, work hard for sin your whole life and your pension is death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus, our master. If you would like to take some time to pray about something in this message with me or others this morning, just come up after. Um, if you are just starting to look at the Christian faith, you are in, in luck because we are going to run Alpha again this fall. I invite you out to that. It's going to run on Tuesday evenings, and we actually have a sign-up sheet on Pastor Harry's door out here. It's another great place to sort out what you're in it for. Thank you.